I'm of a belief that energy access is actually a pathway to all access. Energy is just a starting point to many other services. In a period of uncertainty, electricity is comforting. Ultimately, I feel like leadership is a collection of mistakes that you have done, and then you figure out what not to do again. <laughs> Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Mansoor Hamayan. Mansoor is the co-founder and CEO of Bbox, a company that develops, manufactures, and distributes solar energy solutions to developing countries across Africa and Asia, bringing electricity to over 100,000 homes. He previously worked in engineering and aviation at Rolls-Royce. Welcome, Mansoor. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. So I want to set the stage for our listeners. 13% of the world's population, which is about 940 million people, still don't have access to electricity. And 3 billion people around the world don't have access to clean fuels or energy sources. I know that Bbox is a big name in the geographies where you're operating. It brings electricity to underserved areas. Can you tell us the genesis of why you founded this business to solve such a big problem? The whole thing actually started with me seeing an advert for Rolex in Times Magazine back in 2008, right? So typically Rolex adverts is something to do with yachting or golfing or something like that. But in this case, it was actually about how Rolex gave an award to an organization in Nepal to bring electricity to rural areas. Of course, there was a guy with a Rolex climbing some sort of mountain next to it, but there was one thing, one number there that shocked me, which was that it claimed that 1.6 billion people at the time did not have access to, to, to electricity or extremely unreliable access to electricity. And uh, I was studying electrical engineering at the time here in London and uh, being born in Pakistan and grown up in a few places, including Sweden, I thought I was well-traveled, I knew the world, uh, etc. But it shocked me that such a large proportion of mankind does not have access to electricity. And as I started discussing this this with my friends, I nearly became obsessed by this topic. I really couldn't understand why is it that so many people don't have it? Is it a technical problem? Is it a policy problem? Is it an economic problem? And the more I thought about it, the more I started realizing that actually electricity is absolutely fundamental in ensuring an acceptable quality of life. If you want to live the modern lifestyle in a digitally inclusive, actually being able to fulfill your life to its full potential in today's context, electricity is fundamental. And that became the moral beginning of Bbox initially as a student organization within Imperial College here in London, where I, where I tried to bring electricity to rural areas in Rwanda as a nonprofit first initially. And then I started realizing that uh, we were successful in doing so. We, we, as students, already brought 600 homes. By the, by the time I graduated the university, households in Rwanda got access to electricity. But the profit side was extremely important vehicle for scalability. So 
Initially, I was seeing profit as a means of greed, but suddenly I started seeing profit as a means for scalability. So if I were to solve this problem, that is an important uh, issue to actually ensure an acceptable quality of life, I need to combine that force of business with the force of technology. And that's how everything appeared. Incredible. And normally when I see those advertisements, I kind of just gloss over them. So I'm quite impressed that you read through and were inspired by that one particular statistic. And it is true that Rolex does have a, a really interesting CSR program. But, you know, being from Pakistan and having lived in other places, I'm wondering why you focus the company on Africa. So a lot of people ask me that. I, to be honest, in the beginning, I wanted to make sure that I could do it in a place where if I succeed, I could be proud of that I did it myself. I didn't want anyone to interfere with me. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to avoid Pakistan, which was my initial gut feeling, right? But there was another top topic on top of that that really, really fascinated me. It was the emergence of mobile money. Back in 2010, the telecom boom was really happening rapidly in Africa. So it was a rapid expansion. At the same time in Kenya, that mobile money, the ability to transfer money, digitally between phones started emerging. And there was a lot of press, a lot of attention on that. And the fact that fintech was actually leapfrogging in Africa. So that's where where I got really excited about Africa. So I started seeing Africa as an opportunity where innovation can happen more rapidly. And it had a history of innovation or leapfrogging innovation, whether it was in the telecom industry or in the banking industry. And that's where I also saw a potential for the energy space. And looking at the statistics at the same time, if you look at Africa as a continent, it is the most unelectrified continent with the greatest concentration of customers not having electricity. So the need was also greatest there. That's how East Africa in particular became a focus for our starting. B-Box itself, what is the model? What does your company actually do? And who are your customers? Our customers are people that typically have no electricity whatsoever. So they, they run on kerosene, candles, batteries for radio. They're spending anywhere between $5 a month and $20 a month on these sort of things. And what we do is we install solar panels and batteries into people's households. Each of the systems is remotely monitored and controlled. They have an IoT side to it. When customers pay us using mobile money, so this digital money, we turn the system on. When they don't pay us, we turn it off. And the price point that we get into is far lower than what they're already paying for kerosene, candles, etc. And the experience of having that on-grid experience in that off-grid setting. And we also finance the appliances, like things like TVs, radio shavers, etc. And that has scaled up really rapidly, right? Initially, I thought it would be a really easy thing to do, solar panels and battery. How difficult can it be? But since then, we have our own supply chain in China, so we're a wholly owned entity there. We have to do all the software engineering, the hardware side, where you have like nearly 2 million people that we electrify and over 300,000 active assets that we manage, it becomes a complex exercise quite quickly. That's the business in a nutshell. And so in that system that you put into a house or maybe even a small business, you have, you say, an IoT component. Do you actually have a small building management system in there that can control access and manage the peak demand on the system? Exactly. So it has the full control over the charge controller. So both the input power and output power on the thing and how we use the battery or direct from solar panel to the home. So it's a full control over that experience, adjusting for weather, 
adjusting for load profile, adjusting for other unforeseen events that might happen. That is the side that actually allows us to have high degree of uptime effectively for our system. And we also have to remember that in that pay-as-you-go business model, uh, where people are paying us on a daily basis or monthly basis or however frequently they want to pay us, they will only pay us if the system is working and if they're getting a good quality service, right? So it's really, really, really important to make that happen. But at the same time, we're dealing with some of the poorest people on the planet in some of the most difficult places to to service. Like we're really often the only company there (laughs) other than the telecom, right? Which is not physically there. It's only there by its signals. Like physically with the only company there. So we're really operating at the edge of distribution networks, right? So we really don't want things to fail and we need to keep customers extremely satisfied enough to to pay us. And that's the combination where IoT really, really helps us to find that balance, the data that comes from it. And one last question on that. How big of scale are these systems? How much power do they produce? Do you have like a like a small one and a big one? Or can factories or companies use this kind of thing? Or wh- what is the range of power needs that you serve? So there's no technical limit, actually. We can do as small or as big as you need to. The range that we do is between 10 watts up to the largest one we've done is 30 kilowatts. So for things like... Uh, the largest one is actually on a, on a high school in Congo, right? Well, what is actually, since so it's just solar panel and batteries, right, on an enclosure, so it's, it's like Lego bits. You can add as many or more, and we've standardized something to standardize products, but there's nothing special about that per se. The limiting factor are two. One is what is the energy needs of these households or these businesses, right? The second thing is what is the credit quality or the purchasing power at the same time. Those tend to become the limiting factor for, for, for us. And what I try to do is to really try not to do projects and stick to products because we're really in the volume game. Like a, a few days ago, we had our biggest day a week ago. We did over 500 installations in a single day. That's only possible to do if you have a standardized product range systems, etc. So if it becomes really projecty, frankly speaking, there are better companies than us to do those sort of projecty 10, 100 kilowatt or megawatt range stuff than us. Can you walk us through the impacts on the lives of one of your customers or a family that suddenly has access to clean energy for your product? It's difficult to actually explain. You have to kind of experience that. But I've, I've witnessed many installations myself. Like imagine like a village is totally dark, no electricity, no no light whatsoever, like pitch darkness. And the only thing you can see is a few candles here and there, right? And then the installation happens and you have a few light bulbs, a TV installed and people switch it on, right? So suddenly you have this household that has electricity. It is so incredibly bright, (laughs) especially because your eyes are just like, I don't know, like I think living in like, I live in London. I don't think my my eyes are used to that level of darkness, right? I'm I'm actually blind at those particular times. It's so incredible incredibly bright and, and, and the enthusiasm that happens is, is is real but the thing that's nearly shocking or is this weird feeling that happens is the emotional impact on that client like you actually realize that this household and this community's life has been transformed and I've had sentences like that have really lived with me it's like I remember this old man uh, telling me that he never imagined that he 
he was one of them that could have electricity. I never realized that bringing electricity had an impact on on self-dignity, right? That somehow that people assume that they were not of that sort of people that could have electricity. I never thought about access in those words, right? Uh, that really lived with me. And, and the second one, which I still am amazed by, is that this was in Rwanda. We installed this system late at night. There's a family with like six, seven kids, TV, etc. So we're just installing, looking, talking to the family, etc. And then I noticed that they have a child, a seven-year-old girl. I don't think she's ever played with a TV before or, or used a TV before. She was a pro, like switching channels, like increasing, reducing the volume, etc. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> that gap doesn't actually exist. Like, if people are just given the opportunity, it's such a normalized activity. And the kids were already fighting over who is going to use the TV. So those sort of two things really have, have been quite strong impact. But, but, but the key thing is that transformation happens and the potential it unlocks within people impacted is frankly speaking beyond imagination yeah it's incredible that what that gentleman said to you so you live in london and i know that vbox operates in 12 countries mostly in sub-saharan africa i'm sure it's possible but tell us a little bit more about your leadership style and how it influences running a company that's so vast in terms of geography and countries. Ultimately, I feel like leadership is a collection of mistakes that you have done and then you figure out what not to do again. <laughs> There's a lot of mistakes that have happened over the years, but what I'm proud of what we have today is that we have over a thousand direct employees in the company and then we employ over 2,000 people on top of that in terms of sales agents and support staff, etc. And the reality is that when you're trying to really drive a business of, of changing society, society, you have to be in the business of creating leaders, really investing in the HR because like who's going to install service, support, market in rural parts of the world, right? You have to actually really build capability. So actually we we invest a lot of our time training people, teaching them everything from this is how you use a computer to, hey, this is how you do valuation models, right? Like we have quite a big spread between that. But all of that is needed because if a shop manager, a shop that has 3,000 clients that doesn't understand the asset value, that person is not going to be effective in managing the receivables that we have. So that's a sort of curve that we have. So the thing I'm proud about is the, the leaders of leaders that we've created and also the, the inclusion that we, that we have done at the same time, that being often the first formal employer in rural areas. Those are sort of things that have helped. The other thing is also, as a young entrepreneur, I started this company to be my co-founders when I was only 22 years old, and is that experience matters. So recruiting people who are way smarter than yourself, but more experienced than yourself, really matters. So like in China, one of the earliest employees that we had and still is with us, Victor, he spent 20, 30 years in the toy industry in manufacturing. And toys are complicated, also electronic components, etc. I mean, really brought, brought things here. Getting those sort of experiences in and those people willing to work with us has been one of the reasons I think we are here today. And what would your team say about your leadership style? I think if I, you ask my team, it will tell you guys two or three things. I think I'm extremely social within the company, right? So trying to give that sense of mission, to create a friendly atmosphere, etc. At the same time, I think a lot of people will find me 
quite focused on the small detail. The frustrating part will be in the in-between. I am good at telling people what to do today and where to go. But there's, there's a strategy bit in the middle, the how. How do we actually make a product? How, how do we actually translate that? How do we enter that market, etc.? That's where I think the rest of the team comes on board. So those are sort of things that I, I think the team would say about me. But introspective self-judgment is often incorrect. So uh, I might be totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's worth a try anyway. Your company is also very data-driven. And so I know that that can support a growing company and scaling as well as learning about the customers and informing your future decisions. Can you tell us a little bit more about the data that you collect and, and how that helps you for the future. Why did the data thing actually begin? Maybe that's an important point. Is that when we started working in Rwanda and Kenya, and we started talking about rural clients, and we were trying to raise capital because and ultimately our business is quite capital intensive. Most people that we went to talk to said no because we don't know the client and it's not geographies that we, we, we typically work in, etc. The only thing that helped when we started seeing a bit of glimmer was the, if you could turn data into information and really, instead of talking about the story of XYZ person, we just talk about the data. This is the asset and this is the return. This is the location. This is the credit risk, etc. in number numerical forms, right? But then the judgment part, the prejudice in some ways goes away. So that was really the, 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 when we started seeing that glimmer of, of opportunity where numbers actually remove prejudice, we started to actually really double down on that. So today we collect billions and billions of data points per day in four sources. One is from the system directly, so the current, the voltage, things from the system. The, the second thing is from a customer, so payment quality, frequency of payments, amount of payments, things like that. Third thing is from our staff, so how is our staff moving, what are they doing, the locations of the different things. Fourth one from a call center. So what are people talking to us about? From that, we actually can often predict problems before they happen. Two things I'm quite proud of is things like battery failures. We can often predict a battery failure six months before it happens. So we can actually schedule a technician to visit a client proactively even before the customer actually notices that there's anything fault with it. The other thing is from, a, from an employee perspective, when you have thousands of people, if you have a traditional middle management style, it's not going to work. So what we have is we collect all of this data and we actually translate that into action. So, so we have an action engine in architecture. So when you log into your B box system in the morning. If you say a technician, it will tell you install this person there, repair this there, etc. So different users will actually get their to-do list automatically generated. And that has helped us to actually expand into 12 countries. We're not able to digitalize and automate some of these HR processes. We would not be able to scale. And does the data tell you possibly that there are other forms of energy generation that would make sense for you, like wind or bio or anything? Or is it pretty much solar only makes sense? It's very context-based, right? So in the African context, uh, with the sort of load profiles that, that that exist and the cost of batteries as of today, solar wins majority of the time, right? Where it doesn't win is on the cooking front, right? So actually electricity still is prohibitively expensive for cooking. Actually, if you ever did your household analysis, assuming you don't have air conditioning at home, etc., you will find that you 
basically just paying utility bill for your electric stove, right? The rest pretty much comes for free, right? So that's where there's an opportunity. And we've been experimenting with things like biogas there or even LPG gas for the cooking front. Because today, at least, there's no efficient way, cost-effective way for cooking on electricity produced by any means at the moment. That's an area of opportunity or change that we don't have an answer to, in fact, right now, but we're trying to figure out because biogas and LPG gas have its own challenges in terms of distribution and environmental impacts and safety and all sorts of things that need to be considered. But cooking is an area that hasn't been cracked yet. Let's turn to you. We'd love to know what gets you up in the morning to lead your company with enthusiasm. Do you have any morning routines or, or habits that you do every day? Uh, yeah, a few. Uh, when I get up in the morning, I like to meditate a bit or pray. It really does help put some focus to the day at least. The other thing is, uh, unfortunately, checking my emails uh, straight away. I, I find doing emails extremely calming. <laughs> Often people say like doing emails and stuff like that is really, really uh, stressful. But I oft- I've always found the opposite. I just like to know what problems I have today. I don't like no not knowing the problems, right? It's, it's really satisfactory to me. So that's how my morning typically starts. Otherwise, I'm unfortunately very unhealthy from never have breakfast. Uh, I never go to the gym or anything like that. I don't have any any healthy routines from that perspective. How about coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Uh, coffee for sure, but not at home. I, I, I'll just have coffee uh, the moment I get into work. That's, uh, the, I'm not the type that needs a coffee within 10 minutes in the morning. It's basically just a genuine fast until I reach my office. And how about COVID-19? Has it affected your business in any way, positive or negative? I mean, the overall impact, of course, is negative. We are talking about countries that are in economic struggle, populations that are poor, that have an additional burden on top of them, right? That's the reality. So Corona is a stressful uh, economic event. But in terms of us, the business uh, specifically, what we are seeing is actually more energy consumption. People are spending more time at home. People are watching more TV. People are bored, I guess, more than before. So purely economic. Economically, our revenue per client has increased. Sales uh, have remained very strong because, again, in a period of uncertainty, electricity is comforting, both for security, etc. Our problem has been twofold. One is, uh, of course, uh, staff uh, safety and health and safety. It's a very fine line, a very difficult equation even for a company to solve between being there for customers and keeping the lights on and protecting staff safety. Like that equation is, it goes into moral grounds very quickly. What's more important, right? Like, what are you trying to optimize for? What if something really bad happens? Like, I mean, what can we even do if someone, a staff of ours gets sick in rural DRC? It's even with the most goodwill in the world, it's only so much the company can help logistically, uh, etc. Those are sort of questions that are being troublesome to, to, to deal with, trying to find a balance. 
and the other financial impact is just access to capital, right? So our growth is capital intensive. Each new customer costs money. We have to invest in that asset and then we recover over time and we typically debt finance that, that expansion. So that has mostly dried up at the moment, both from our perspective is trying to look at what's happening and new countries as well. We were, op- we were planning to open up two more countries this year. I, frankly speaking, I think all of that is become a 2021 activity and as i can see yourself at the whole working from home and uh, overnight uh, reorganizing everything to be uh, to, to work from home thing uh, came with own set of challenges but now i feel that things are getting stabilized and i'm nearly accepted accepting this new reality and I, I don't really think so much about the pre-COVID era anymore. I'm just thinking about the things going forward now. So I want to go back to two quotes that I, I read in preparation for this podcast. One is that Bebox is more in the business of solving poverty than in the business of providing electricity. And then the second is the moral basis of the company is that electricity is essential to the quality of life. These are quotes from you, and you illustrated that to us with um, the story of the, the man who thought that electricity was not something that was possible in his life. Have you ever had pushback from your shareholders or other stakeholders on these very distinct views of the purpose of your company? No, of course. I think like, I mean, the pushbacks are often is take the first one, which I believe it to, to be true, which is that if you look about how, like when people get energy access, that means that People, someone went to that household, installed stuff. Someone established a physical distribution to that customer. At the same time, if the customer is paying you, you've also created a digital infrastructure to the customer, right? So, and that infrastructure, physical plus digital, could be used on top of that for any other thing, whether it's a micro loan, micro insurance, etc. So, I'm of a belief that energy access is actually a pathway to all access. The energy is just a starting point to many other services. And as we look at our data as well, is that when you give people energy access, they definitely get lifted out of energy poverty. And their, their ability to lift themselves out of poverty as a whole greatly gets increased. Now, there's a lot of factors in here, like what segment, population group, etc. There's really a very wide feed of that economic gain that, that comes from it. But it definitely is one of the big enablers. The question we often have is that we already picked a very big problem, which is that electrify a billion people. If you want to add poverty on top of that, it might be too big for one company, right? It is too big for one company, right? So do we really want to then get into the business of micro insurance, agricultural insurance, seeds, uh, agriculture offtake? There's so many opportunities that come with that. And that's where I guess the pushback kind of happens between that opportunity that we see among our client base daily versus the focus that we need to keep in the business because at the end of the day we need this is not an academic exercise we do need to think about revenue cost and the bottom line right so that is definitely a consequence that happens from it but electricity being a fundamental right or need that doesn't get questioned as much it sometimes in some sectors earlier on there was some sort of misconception often which has been disappeared recently is that do poor people i've had i have been asked this question many times in the early days do poor people really need a smartphone <laughs> do poor people really need a tv right so that's sort of like 
asking them, somewhere in our prejudice or society has made us and them. That has over time disappeared a lot more. I find that question infuriating because it, you're right, it creates us and them and it doesn't understand that we do have access in, in more developed economies. We just, that person does that, that takes it for granted. So I would love for you to leave us with a piece of advice for any purpose-driven leaders out there or burgeoning purpose-driven leaders that are looking to achieve the scale that you are, what advice would you give for an entrepreneur or business leader holding uh, social values as well as profitable business model at the same time? The thing I would encourage people that are thinking about technology in particular is that actually technology is absolutely essential to reach many, many people, especially in poor countries, in poor places. Technology is efficiency. Often like high tech and development uh, are not seen in the same sentence. And, and I think a lot of the opportunity actually lie in that construction. So whether it's blockchain, for example, and poverty, let's, let's put there, I think there's so many opportunities there. Whether it's your phone and lifestyle, there's so many opportunities there, right? Right. So I think that's that sort of contradictions that we we think about is the real opportunity. And, and from a pure entrepreneur startup perspective, you are really who you do business with. <laughs> so pick your team carefully, pick your, your partners very, very carefully. And if you have that, that sort of human element right and you have a technology plus a problem that results in scale and efficiency i think is extremely exciting journey ahead of you and that's something to look forward to this has been a super enlightening conversation for me same here thank you Mansoor. it was so great to have you and i'm confident that our audience will get a lot of value out of this so thank you so much for your time thank you really appreciate it and thank you for your good work as well take care Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.